I don't think we met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Tommy Moore! Robbie Robbie Weekly. Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. A very happy new year to you. Gavin Casey here in a snow-covered cork. And I'm joined to kick off the new year with my two favourite men in the world. Murray Kinsella of the 42.a. How are you, Murray? I'm good, Gav. Happy New Year. Many happy returns to you. And Bernard Jackman joins us as well. Happy New Year to you, Birch. How are you? Good, yeah. I missed you, lads. Glad to be back. Once a week. He says that with, <laughs> a, stri- he says it with a straight face. <laughs> no, I am. Are you a resolutions man, Birch? No. no. <laughs> same faults. Year on year, just just double them. <laughs> they might come into fashion a bit. What about you, Murray? Are you a, a resolutions kind of guy? Not really. No, nothing big like that. Refocus, maybe. Um, I always start with a kind of fresh mind after a couple of weeks off and renewed kind of motivation. So that's a good thing, um, especially now when it's so hard to keep that motivation when you're stuck in the house. So now I'm in good good form and looking forward to hopefully a bit of Roby rolling on while everything else is is slowed up. Yeah, thanks be to Jesus for sport generally, I think, at the moment. Uh, we have loads to talk about on the rugby front today. We, naturally enough, will look ahead to the two Interprobes this weekend, and in doing so, we'll look back over the action from the weekend just gone. It was an absolutely brilliant weekend for Connacht, and maybe less so Ulster, where they got the win against Munster in the end. And I think everybody's really excited for the two fixtures coming up as well over the next few days. But just to start with the Lions tour, lads, because it's quite prominent in the news and rugby headlines at the moment. Uh, It seems as though there might be a final decision made on the fate of this summer's tour in about a month's time. That's what they're aiming for. They're obviously in the midst of discussions at the moment. Difficult enough discussions, I'd imagine, because it does feel as though even some of those contingency options that they're exploring don't really seem that feasible, feasible, Murray. Um, Would it be fair to say that the only actual feasible option at the moment would be to have the tests on this side of the world? It, It seems difficult to imagine that it would make sense to say play it as scheduled in South Africa with no fans which would be the likelihood considering you're bringing players together from uh, four countries staff even in a bubble type environment they are naturally interacting with travel accommodation uh, travel staff accommodation staff and so on it just doesn't really feel like the right idea uh, as the coronavirus ramps up in South Africa in particular at the moment and to be fair um, on these two islands here and uh, to move it to next summer seems absolutely deluded, to be honest. It's very difficult to imagine that the national unions would be willing to cancel tours that are already scheduled and basically take a financial hit so that the Lions can kind of live on and make their buck for a summer. Um, so I don't know. I, I, what, what are your thoughts on it? It just strikes me as that to play it uh, in the Northern Hemisphere this time around is the only thing that makes sense to me at the moment. I could be completely wrong. Though. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure how feasible it is or, you know, how likely it is that we'll have matches with fans here in July, to be honest. Like, the situation here isn't great either and the UK obviously is is a mess as well. Um, so I don't know. Like, it's very hard on a COVID-19 level to predict what the story is going to be come July, whether there will be a small crowd even allowed in. Um, certainly, obviously, in South Africa, it, it looks really... Like a tough situation for them with COVID, really sad situation with it as well. And as as it is everywhere now, it's this new wave of it. Um, so, I mean, it's very hard to predict what the situation is going to be here, there, in terms of the fans going in. And that's the big thing here. Like the Lions, like 
it's a great tradition and there is a romance about it but at the end of the day it's a money-making tool for rugby and this is a professional game it's a business that has to be massive part of it and it is a massive part of it so like listen you you you'd question why SA rugby would give up the right to host it um obviously the fans being there is what makes the money so i presume that they're very keen to get it postponed until 2022 the unions involved in the lines do obviously make money off it as well um and you know i'm sure that they're keen for that um that income to to still exist even if it is slightly delayed like how much do Ireland make from going on tour to New Zealand in 2022 I'm not sure exactly to be honest but I would imagine that the Lions is a a big money-making thing for all four of the unions involved and that they're going to make as big an effort as possible to make this happen in some format Um, whether that be with the fans delayed or whether that be happening this year and you get that tv revenue at least which is obviously big as well um but it is a it's a tough situation for for both of them to try and predict what's going to be uh what the what the scenario and the whole world is going to be in, in five six months time so i'll be really fascinated to see where they come down in, in a month's time maybe we'll have a little bit more clarity then in terms of predicting forward but it looks like a really tough situation at the moment yeah, uh, do you have any knowledge of that, Bernard? The not necessarily the sums involved, but I guess the uh, level of income that the unions would generate on a, a tour to the Southern Hemisphere, for example, as as individual countries. Uh, it's no how it works is um, yeah how it works is the host nation pays your your travel and, and board um, for a set amount of people. So whatever the squad size is agreed upon. Um, plus a, a management staff, and if you want to bring extra, then the home, the home, there the union itself pays it. Um, so effectively, us going to New Zealand next summer would bring in very little revenue. But when we get the revenues, when they come to us, so it's it's um, uh, it's quid pro quo. So basically, yeah, they, it's only understanding that they will come to Europe in November um, on a cyclical basis, and that's when the home unions will will get the revenue. And likewise. It's a little bit different for the All Blacks because they're a commercial machine. So when they come to, to Dublin, they can do some things with AIG, etc. But in general, that's how it works. And that's why it's very difficult for the Pacific nations because no one ever goes there. Um, and they don't really get to, to get that revenue from having home international. So just my own opinion on I, I can't see it happening this, this summer. I think um, I don't think I think the home unions would agree to play in 2022 if they thought they were going to get substantial revenue back from it in terms of in South Africa with big crowds, etc. And they would still go ahead with Ireland would still tour to tour to New Zealand with a you know a, a Lions less squad. So Andy Farrell potentially, while he would like to go there with a full fully stacked team, he potentially could use that as an opportunity to give some more players a final opportunity to not a final opportunity, but a year out from a World Cup to to get some game time in obviously a a very difficult environment. So I don't think it's the end of the world um, for those summer tours, given what's happening in the game. It's not ideal, but for those summer tours to happen without um, the Lions contingent. But sorry, the three the three options I read about were push it till 2022 in South Africa, play it as it is uh, in South Africa without crowds, or potentially play it here in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere. I don't think there's any point. As, as Murray said, um, there'll be no no one in the stadiums anyway. So um, apart from not risk not sending our players to to South Africa, um, that's the only advantage of that. The other option, which hasn't been considered, which I just thought about there now, was, you know, could we play it in South Africa? Um, 
in very the players stay in a very strict bubbles, but could end pay per view route that that that's in your game, Gavin, with the boxing, you know. And I know you'd have to do a deal with whoever the rights holders are at the moment, but but could they realistically, you know, go to the market pay per view, um, like Mayweather has done or whatever UFC, and bring in the types of money necessary to compensate for the lack of corporate, the lack of corporate hospitality, the lack of bums on seats. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but it's just, obviously it's not an option because it hasn't been mentioned, but um, I think if the Lions store went ahead in South Africa without crowds in 2021, this summer, um, I think people would pay for it, you know, as a once off, uh, you know, three test series or whatever, but um, it would be a very different tour. You wouldn't play the provincial teams, um, both, the the box and the lines would obviously be in very strict bubbles, um yeah so it's just it's a bit left field but might be something that that could have worked if they had a, uh or could work but I I think the most likely solution is push it back to twenty twenty two and you know hope that they can get some people to, uh in the in the in the stadiums in in South Africa and people traveling because that's that's a huge part of of the lines success is you know fans from the four nations getting together and, and supporting one team and, and traveling and having the fun. Mm. I agree on that. I agree on that, Gav, just briefly, that that's the most ideal scenario in what is not an ideal situation like this. None of these outcomes are, are, are perfect for the game, but you've got to come up with an outcome in a really tricky situation to, you know, and we're, we're talking about money a lot here, but unfortunately that is the reality of it. And how, like, you know, Ireland sends six or seven players, it's not that difficult to go and do a tour. Yeah, you might lose to New Zealand a couple of times, but that's good for your squad depth. England obviously would be heavily hit and their tour would be compromised in that sense but like something's got to be compromised here um and like i think that the financial return for the unions is strong enough for them to to make that compromise um and having fans there for me is is a massive part of it like anytime you think of the lines it's with that traveling horde of fans and again that's what makes the money for the tour that's why south africa want to host this thing yes it's going to be competitive and it's great for them and it'll sell um it'll sell their team to, to South African fans and, and that's what they want to do with this tour. That's why it's so special. It's every four years and the traveling and, and touring sense of it is is a massive part of that. So I agree with Birch on that. I think right now that that looks like the best solution. Oh, it definitely sounds like it listening to the two V men there. I probably miscalculated or misjudged the uh, value of a foreign tour. I thought that maybe the television money uh, from that would be more significant than you're making it out to be there. And if it's the case that the returns on those are negligible, then just absolutely push it back to next year. And and to be honest, Bernard, I hadn't even considered the prospect of doing both, doing Alliance Tour and Ireland Tour in New Zealand, uh, perhaps even simultaneously. It would be uh, a feasible option, or it seems like one for sure. Pay-per-view model would be interesting as well. I think it's a good shout. Like, uh, I would, one of my concerns with it, or, or maybe a reason why it hasn't been pushed, would be that it can be a bit of a lost leader for Sky. And obviously Sky do have the exclusive rights to this. I would imagine that if you had, if you wanted to go down the PPV route, you would probably have to look at an alternative uh, provider. And given that Sky have, have the Lions uh, contractually uh, on their books, it, it's probably not quite a runner for them. But I do think people would pay for it, for sure. If it was an option for people, like I don't think that the consumption of it is the issue. I think it would be just a contractual issue. You'd Im- like imagine Warren Gatland and Razzie doing like a face-off <laughs> at like a weigh-in <laughs> on the Friday night before a test. Uh, uh, loads of actual on-field rugby to discuss. Pro 14 
really good weekend for Connacht. Murray, you sat down with, or rather you dialed up Owen Toolan on Monday and, and went through it in, in huge detail. We're going to do it here as well with Bernard and, and get some different slants on it. And to be honest, the odd time we do get Connacht fans saying that they, they feel like the fourth province and maybe we don't talk about them quite as often as we talk about Munster and Leinster specifically. The odd one, yeah, Murray is throwing me a kind of a uh, an incredulous look here on the on the video. But yeah, you'd be surprised, <laughs> you'd be surprised. Uh, so we have to give them their juice today, absolutely. Um, I'll actually start with yourself, Bernard, given Murray has, has spoken to Owen about it to the members on Monday. Um, and I want to start with Jack Carty because... Where else could you start after a game like that? 25 points, steering Connacht to their first victory in Dublin since 2002. First ever victory at that particular ground. And uh, Cardi again putting his hand up and, and becoming involved in the conversation uh, in this plethora of Irish 10s as we look forward, which probably hasn't quite been the case since the World Cup. He took a lot of, he almost took a lot of flack on himself after that World Cup kind of put his hand up and acknowledge he, he wasn't quite where he was uh, he wasn't at where he kind of felt he should have been uh, he is a kind of a confidence player I think it's fair to say and maybe when things weren't going so well after that World Cup his form dipped a little bit afterwards and it took him a while to rediscover some of the form he'd produced before that World Cup but looking at him at the RDS there uh, over the weekend it looks like Jack Carty is back and possibly uh, a runner for Ireland again for the first time in a while yeah, look, I think that's probably a game that, for him, if he ever has a dip in form again, he can just go back to as a, as a reference point around um, how mature he's become in, in terms of his, his game management and how influential he was, um, you know, in in leading his team towards a big scalp. And and most importantly, I think where Connacht were coming from, they were coming, you know, in, going to the RDS in a in a in a difficult spot in terms of some injuries in terms of some results and you know I think it's a it's a huge achievement for them to uh, put that type of performance in and and it's not just the physicality that they brought and and that was a, an element but um the maturity the resilience um uh, the skill level the the tactical um smarts that they they showed it was it was really um an all around performance and you know I think the Carty kept them in the game when. The pressure came on, and Leinster rallied. Um, his ability to to stick on plan, uh, to find touch with his kicks, to uh, and not not inside his twenty two, to find grass and, and touch outside his twenty two, um, to give them their defence a little bit of a breather, to put pressure on Leinster's um, line out, um, and you know to get a a restart point because what they try and do is to try and keep the ball in play for long periods from minute 50 onwards and you know generally teams crack because Leinster are very fit and, and they're um they have lots of power and, and generally teams crack and, and I think he he made a huge influence he was a huge influence in that game in terms of keeping his team um in, in the fight even though they had scoreboard lead um and uh yeah I, I thought it was excellent I, I thought you know obviously he got two tries um his kicking is his kicking is phenomenal, and I did a piece before they played Bristol because obviously the week before he put in a beautiful kick pass to to Matt Healy for a try, and uh, I just downloaded some games and just started to to pick out some of his kick passing right, um, and um, I've got a couple of lads, friends of mine who were kick coaches, uh, Alan Kingsley who's uh, consulting the Dragons and and Biritz and uh, Vlock Killier who's the the French kicking coach and I sent them the clips and because it's so unusual his technique um he doesn't kick the ball like a, a stereotypical rugby player um it's a kind of a, 
it's unorthodox, but uh, well, it's, it's effective. And, um, you know, he was a very good soccer player, very good Gaelic player. Um, and he can see that. And, and like, he's not a young man anymore, a young player anymore. He's got a lot of experience, but uh, what is he, 27, 28? He still has a huge amount of rugby ahead of him. And, and I would, you know, his form got him to the World Cup squad, his form gave him the opportunity to play against Japan. You know, for the first half, he was going really well. The second half, obviously, uh, things, you know, deteriorated a bit. But it wasn't just down to him. As a, as a team, we just didn't look to be um, ready for that kind of um, high-speed game. And and he probably suffered the most, really. Um, and that's sometimes the case when someone in a in an important position that doesn't have the, the experience of, of other players. But realistically, when I look back at that Japan game, you know, he did a hell of a lot of good things and unfortunately it, it probably affected his form for Connacht and, and Fitzgerald had a good run but I do think Carty has has a lot about him and um, you know that game hopefully will will push him back into an Irish squad and and hopefully he can ride that confidence and uh, and do it at an international level but um, yeah it was just a great win by Connacht and, and well deserved I mean you know I was down in, in the sports ground against Ulster you know they would have been absolutely gutted with their second half performance Um you know, lost lost heroically to Racing away, um, you know, but they are they are fighting with um, you know, with less means than the other three provinces, and uh, uh, I just think they've built up a, a level of of resilience and consistency that's admirable. What were Vlock and Adams' interpretations of Carty's kicking uh, technique when you sent them those clips? No, they no, they told us excellent, but um. It's probably a style they wouldn't coach, if you get me. Um, as in a technique they wouldn't coach. I suppose it's like a golfer swing or whatever. You don't want to tinker with it too much. But just, um, yeah, they, like his his ability to uh, to get the ball to bounce properly. It's a low trajectory in his cross field kicks. Um, the variety of us, yeah, they, they, he's he's very impressive in that area. Now we were lucky. I mean, Sexton is a is a great kicker of the ball. You know, Harry and Ross Byrne are excellent in that area as well. But um, for me at the moment. He he's someone who's who's shown that skill off, um, you know, on a on a regular basis and executing it, um, you know, executing it very well. Bernard touched upon it there, Murray, and I thought it was one of the most impressive aspects of Connacht's performance and Carty's performance in, as an individual as well was the fact that they never had the momentum of the game wrestled away from them by Leinster the way Leinster do it so well, where it, it, you know to to use Jerry Corn- Thornley's. Uh, uh, sort of um, his concept of the ebb and flow of ebb and flow of psychic energy in a game. Uh, quite often, Leinster will bend the game uh, in their will, if you like, or, or to their will rather. Uh, even when things aren't going their way, it might take only a couple of minor moments, big moments uh, within the the context of like a, a few minutes, and suddenly the game has turned on its head. But even at times when they threatened to do that over the weekend, it just felt as though Connacht were impervious to any momentum swings. And it did feel as though Cardi was absolutely central to that. He just refused to cede control of the game, if you like, in what was, like, it was a close game, but the more that Leinster tried to come into it, the more often Connacht would actually uh, keep them at arm's, arm's length, if you like. And it, it you know, with, with half an hour to go, it didn't feel as though Connacht were going to lose that game at all, which is... An unusual, an unusual feeling while watching Leinster, to be honest. Connacht stuck to their plan, which was the most pleasing thing, I think, for the players and Andy Friend speaking to them this week. They had a clear, simple enough plan, but they clinically executed it. They kicked 30 times 
as Berners mentioned, Jack Hardy found grass an awful lot. I think seven times with his kicks in play, he, he actually got the ball to bounce in the Leinster half, turned them. I mean, it was an ideal situation, let's be honest about that, in terms of Leinster, obviously with a lot of cohesion, injury issues. They had a very inexperienced back three with the very talented Andrew Smith and Max O'Reilly making their debuts, and, and you saw some of their inexperience in that coverage. But Cardi was the perfect man to take advantage of that. Blade did some good kicking too. He had a couple of kicks even from John Porch as well. And they chased their kicks really well, got the ball on grass, put Leinster in tough situations, and uncharacteristically, Leinster really struggled with their kind of exiting and that progression from zone to zone. They just couldn't get into... You know, when they're stuck in the middle of third, middle third of the pitch, they couldn't actually get into the... Connick 22 very often in the first half they had two visits for like 14 seconds combined which is very little one of them now in fairness was a Scott Penny try and the other one was Ryan Baird making that big break but they got turned over they just couldn't get into good positions on the pitch which generally they do and Connick were patient with their defense as well they obviously brought a ferocious line speed got really high on the edge suffocated Leinster's desire to go wide um, and also worked really hard to cover space in behind so they just gave a, a 60, 70 minute display of that and, and sealed the win with that Tom Daly intercept try. And you're so right, Jack Hardy was central to it. Perfect conditions for a guy like him with his really impressive skill set. Andy Friend came into Connacht and said, every single one of you players has a, a particular unique weapon. And Jack Hardy identified his as his tactical kicking and he's really strengthened that strength. You know, players often focus on their weaknesses, but Friend pushes them to, to actually focus on what they're good at and make that even better. Um, and I agree, his his unorthodox kicking style. It's just really pleasing to watch, isn't it? That banana kick in the second half, the way he struck that ball. You just don't see something like that very often. Um, and obviously his multi-sport background plays into that very good footballer, very good at soccer. He played Ireland under 15s. And I just remember this week him telling me at one stage that he got a letter to go on trials to Southampton. Um, but his parents kind of misled him about it. They said there was a transfer embargo at that time. And it, it kind of fizzled out. He never went over. And he later asked them, you know, what happened with that transfer embargo? And they said, no, there actually wasn't a transfer embargo. We just wanted you to finish out your leaving cert. And we felt it wasn't the right time for it. So that was Roby's gain, definitely. I wonder if his bank account would rather be a Southampton footballer. <laughs> but uh, no, he's a, he's a... Well, he'd be a Liverpool. Yeah, he'd exactly. Be a Liverpool he would have got the big now. transfer. Um, but he's, he's a wonderful player to watch when he's in that form. The challenge now is, let's see it against Munster, a really strong Munster team, not a... Uh, Leinster team that's been struck by injury and, and missing a few frontliners you've got to be really consistent with it and you don't have to be you know 10 out of 10 every single time but you've got to make sure you're always a 7 or 8 um, and that you're constantly keeping that place like he has had a battle even in Connacht in more recent times with Conor Fitzgerald who's emerged really well and and at times last season got picked ahead of Carty so you've got to be extremely consistent with it if you're going to be a test player but there's no doubting that he has a really unique skill set and can offer something a little bit different there as well. It's not just a kicking. I like his offloading game. I think he's challenged himself to be more of a threat at the line, working hard on his defence as well. So I think there's more to come from him. It's funny how fickle it is because the previous week I was down in Galway and um, for the Connacht Ulster game. And as I drove back up, uh, I was getting text messages from pundits saying, oh, Carty's useless um, because he couldn't. He couldn't get caught out of their own half in the second half and like there was, <laughs> the wind changed massively and it was so it was so um uh easy for for madigan and, and matchson to play that territory game but it's just 40 minutes like basically written off for sure it has to start connor can't give carty much um more game time and then this week he's a hero 
it's just, you know what I mean it's just it's mad I know there'll be Leinster fans listening to this and laughing because we're waxing lyrical about Connacht beating a Leinster team that as you say Murray were without a number of frontliners but the reality is that Leinster have beaten the other provinces with fully second selections plenty of times over the last few years that's how good Leinster have been so we're only taking this game yeah. on the actual merit of it um, totally that said as they totally like Leinster Leinster did a lot of things poorly in this game as well like Connacht, Connacht forced them into tough situations and they made bad decisions and something that they'll massively hopefully have learned from, from from their point of view like they got run into touch four or five times maybe which is kind of unacceptable at that level of the game to, to lose possession in that way uh, the line out again struggled like there are concerns there for them that maybe you know when you're you're cruising past other teams they're just going to get glossed over so in a way it's a healthy thing for Leinster I think yeah, I think the, the the question mark around Leinster will be the game they're playing at the moment, uh, particularly since lockdown, is about getting in front and then pressurising the opposition and, and, and capitalising on their mistakes. The two games they've lost, the opposition have got really fast starts, which is obviously Connacht and Saracens. Now, you know, a lot of teams wouldn't come back from, from that points deficit, but it affected how Leinster were able to play. Um, and that plan B as such hasn't looked as fluid, you know, when you're chasing the game and you can't kick to the corners and, you know, find that space in behind and then get 22 opportunities or force an exit, um, force a poor exit and go back at them because the opposition have the scoreboard lead and, and the mindset changes completely. So I think from from a Leinster point of view, you know, Leo Leo and, and Stuart and the coaches will, will get a lot more learning from this than they did from Saracens. Uh, well, sorry, they got a lot of learnings from Saracens, but they haven't had a chance to... Uh, to implement it, um, or have another chance to implement it with their with their starting team, um, and I, I don't think losing a game is is a bad thing if it actually helps you become a more complete team. So um, it's so hard to keep that consistency and 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 to keep complacency out uh, when you're winning every game by a bonus point. You know, so it's natural. You know, they say complacency is a cancer in sport, and I, I thought Leinster looked a little bit complacent. Um, you know, early doors and Connacht got into them, and they were just a little bit out of sync and. It mightn't have been necessarily, it definitely wouldn't have been at the underestimated Connacht, but it might have been just a little bit of a factor of winning so many games, um, the game against Munster being called off, maybe a, a different prep than normal. Um, but they were a little bit out of sorts. Connacht ex- exploited that. Um, but I think, uh, and that's a challenge for Ulster, is to get ahead, get, get ahead early, get a fast start Friday night and, and see what Leinster do then. But I, I think it'll be a different story. I mean, there'll be a massive mm. backlash physically. Yeah, we'll look ahead to Leinster and Ulster as well after we, we chat about Ulster's victory over Munster. But ju- just one last one on Connacht. And you, you alluded to it a, a moment ago, Murray, that Connacht now will be facing a Munster pack full of frontliners. And uh, maybe it's a different sort of proposition. But I was just wondering, based on, say, the line speed that they did bring to proceedings last weekend and the intensity, generally speaking, like it was just a ferocious sort of performance. I think they made, was it 180 odd tackles, something like that? Uh, is it? How sustainable is that? Like, is the challenge for them that it can't just be a one-off performance where you've got yourself g'd up to to finally get one over on Leinster in Dublin? Like, you need to back it up, not just Trackerty in terms of consistency, but actually Connacht doing it as well. Like, they're in, uh, they're entering this game in better form than Munster by default, having won against Leinster while Munster lost. And it's, I'm wondering how much they like. It, 
to what extent will they be able to rediscover what they produce against Leinster just a week later in another massive game? Uh, and is that the challenge for them to be able to do that? How likely is it that they can do it? Totally the challenge. I don't know. I honestly don't know. The only, I suppose, heart they'll take is that over the run of defeats that they had, they played some really good rugby. I mean, we discussed the Racing 92 match in, in detail. Myself and Bernard felt Racing maybe always had that extra year, but Connacht more than matched them physically. In fact, they they bettered them in, in many of the collisions. So so there was a precedent for this Leinster performance against Racing, one of the very best teams in Europe as well. And that was away from home. And you saw them physically dominate. You saw the aggression in their line speed. You saw their ball carriers running through Racing 92 defenders. So it's there now. And, and you, you would imagine, and I certainly believe that Andy Friend is really hammering that point home and, and giving them that level of belief and that level of understanding that you know we're consistently doing this now maybe the results didn't go our way the, the weeks before but this is the level we're at now and this is the bar let's get above that and push it on again it is a totally different challenge but absolutely you can bring line speed against anyone it's a it's a work rate thing which has been off the charts for them really like they're working so hard to get the line set early the kick chase as we mentioned is is really remarkable and they're working smart as well guys ahead of the ball not tracking the whole way back if they're on kick chase just wait that little second and get brought on side little things like that um, that would give you a belief that yeah they can do it again um, even the line out defence I know Leinster's line out as I, I mentioned was was poor again and, and struggle at times but Connick put on pressure there and, and again you can do that against any side Um Carty would probably have less backfield space to exploit this time around, you would imagine. Munster haven't done a lot of homework on that, but he's got the skill set to do it. So I'm really excited to see, particularly as they might have a few guys coming back, we don't quite know on Bundyaki and his knee injury. There's a couple other guys like Marmion and Bielham who were missing last day, uh, Paul Boyle, guys like that. Um, so we wait and see how, how much changes, how many changes they make, but I'm really excited to see them try and back this up and deliver something similar um, but it's been there in the last few weeks not just this Leinster game so they're on a nice little kind of run of form albeit without the result always I'll get your predictions for that one at the end of the show uh, let's chat about Ulster and Munster and the undoubted highlight of this game Bernard Jackman was at halftime as Craig Casey made his usual dash towards the dressing rooms <laughs> only to be beaten in a sprint by John Cooney, who seized his opportunity to strike a psychological blow, just as Ulster were gaining the ascendancy. Uh, that was a very—I I know it's, it's totally inconsequential, but I thought it was such a funny moment. And actually, watching it as somebody who's openly a Munster fan, I was a little bit annoyed. <laughs> I was kind of willing Casey on to, to catch up with him as they got towards the uh, the tunnel. Uh, did like. What, what would Cooney's motivation be there? Is it simply uh, to try and gain some sort of a psychological edge to send a message to Casey like, I know what you're up to and I'm going to better you at it? Or is it is it more so kind of having a laugh nearly? No, I think it's old bull, young bull um, syndrome. And uh, I, I'm sure Cooney has spotted it from Casey. Uh, I've noticed myself um, you know, at halftime when Casey started uh, he, he makes a big dash to the, to the dressing room. And uh, it's obviously something that's part of his mentality or oh, I'm going to show everyone I'm fresh um, I'm fit I'm ready for more and you wouldn't know how long he's been doing it he could be doing it for, for a long time or he could have seen someone else do it I know teams have had that attitude where you know they decide that we're going to get off the pitch in front of the, the opposition to show we're fresh um, but I haven't seen an individual do it like as an outlier like Casey has but obviously Cooney must have seen this, spotted it, and put a mental note right when I play him. Because uh, it's like when you when you when you look at the clip, 
it's like he's forgot about it for a second and Casey gets a head start and then he just like takes off and then passes him out and it's kind of the camera goes away but he's kind of looking back to see <laughs> I actually don't know who got into the dressing room first the, 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 we don't have footage of that I might have to ring Dan McFarlane and get the um, the, the behind the behind the dressing room footage but uh, look at it was just a funny moment but it's definitely Cooney just going look at you know I know you're a threat I know your people are bigging you up but um I, I'm here and, I, and you're going to have to work a little bit harder to get ahead of me. Mm, one step ahead of you, literally. It did feel as though Ulster had a kind of a, a bit of an edge, generally speaking, in that first half. And it was understandable, I think, given the two team selections, Murray. Second half kind of transpired a little bit differently. It didn't quite feel as though Munster were ever going to win the game, and, and they probably did well. In fact, they, they absolutely did well to get a losing bonus point. But again, from a kind of a psychological standpoint, it, as they trotted off the field at full time it probably felt as though they were perhaps marginally more happy with their own work than Ulster were like it actually reminded me a little bit of and look listen don't get me wrong we're going to talk about what Ulster did well as well but it reminded me a little bit of some of the Munster Leinster games from Christmas's past where Leinster would feel like a a second string Munster might beat them uh, by a score or two but it didn't quite feel as though they'd asserted the the sort of dominance that they would have liked to assert on on their rival's second string if you like and that there was always a a bit of a sense bubbling beneath it that if the opposition were at full strength uh, i.e. if Leinster were at full strength they would have turned us over Um, that was kind of the impression I took from the game which isn't to attempt to dismiss uh, what Ulster did well particularly in that first half it was on a knife edge wasn't it in the second half Ulster yeah clearly the dominant team some lovely attacking rugby in the first half with Billy Burns particularly influential I thought he challenged the line really impressively darted at the right time made good decisions you think of that try for Ethan McElroy where Burns makes a, a good decision to dart when there's poor spacing close to the ruck gets through Two phases later, he's back on his feet and finds a kick space for, for McElroy to score. That was really impressive. The, the line-out play, obviously, leading to Matt Faddis's try, was clinical, really well executed. Lovely kind of Dwayne Peel influence on that. They're going to miss that, potentially. Um, and you just thought this is going to be a bonus point win for, for Ulster. Munster were really poor in the first half. They gave them easy access into their half. They didn't defend particularly well. They didn't look cohesive, understandably, as I say, with all those changes. But the second half, it slowly kind of tilted back and you had Munster, you know, pressing the line to, to get that bonus point try right at the end. Ulster be particularly frustrated. I think there was a passage, the one that ends with Kieran Treadwell just knocking on as he tries to go for the try line. They had a little overlap there, just a little bit more patience and you think they'll probably score and that cracks Munster and, and they go on to, to get that bonus point. But to be fair to Munster, like we always speak about their resilience, I think, and they showed that in bucket loads in this game. There were so many instances where there was really good scramble defence. I think a Calvin Nash tackling Faddis kind of wide on the on Munster's right in the 22 at one stage. There was something similar over on the left with Stockdale where they just about clung on and, and dug in and then Clute's influence obviously became more and more prominent as the game went on, obviously around the, the breakdown. And, and Ulster played into that. They had made errors, poor decisions um, and just basic handling things that, that let them down and... and gave up that field position but I think Munster will be really pleased obviously you want to win every game but uh, wholesale changes again a team that hasn't played a lot together really uh, and they come away with something that, that keeps them ticking over I, I think they'll be pleased enough and happy to just move on from it not overly dwell on it we didn't see too much of the stuff they've been working on say in attack little glimpses and I thought they were promising a couple of times where Dan Goggins hands on the edge just get them into space the Rory Scanlon pass over the top after some nice uh, handling by the forwards. That kind of stuff 
is a continuation of what we've seen. So I think there was enough there for them to be happy. Um, and you're not going to be brilliant in every single game, particularly after all those changes. So they'll be happy. Also be frustrated. Um, but again, as we've said, this weekend is the big one for them. Big time. It's a tricky game for Dan McFarland to analyse, I'd imagine. Like the analysis will be done now. We're, we're on to Thursday. But Bernard, like he would have seen things, his team do things in that first half that would have really pleased him, you'd imagine. And again, it did seem to sort of turn somewhere in the second half, maybe even at halftime itself. Perhaps Ulster kind of felt as though Munster were so bad in the first half that they subconsciously took the foot off the gas a little bit in the second half, which is a completely natural thing. But I was wondering, like, did you feel as though maybe Munster's improvement in the second half was just a sort of a truer reflection of where the two teams were at and that... Uh, I don't know maybe the the first half was perhaps misrepresentative a little bit in that like also were obviously dominant but they weren't actually playing against much just in, in what Munster were doing and in the second half rather than Ulster dropping off Ulster or Munster kind of brought things back to par a little bit or or did you see or, or did you feel that there was a, a really noticeable drop off in Ulster's performance in the second half and what would McFarland think of it I think there was a drop off I think the bench didn't uh, affect the cohesion um, I think Munster picked up a little, a lot actually, but um, I think there's a worry for for McFarland. Um, they had obviously a good second half against Connacht, but in a lot of games they faded badly. Um, in that second half, they've been great at getting into into their um their shape and getting being clinical early doors um and having really good first half. But uh, in a lot of games they they haven't finished strong, and, and that's that's just, that's a, definitely a concern. Um, you know I. I it's hard to criticize them when they've won 10 from 10 and it's their best, the best run ever in, in the pro 14. But, um, I do think Dan will be very conscious of, um, that ruthless edge that they maybe lack at the moment and, and going and really killing teams. They could have, well, sorry, they would have liked to thought that they could have put Munster to the sword uh, and got a, a bonus point given, I thought how, how well our dominant were first half, but it ended up being a, a you know a bit of a shit fight um, the second half, and I didn't really learn a lot from it, and, and disappointing obviously to to concede that try late for for Munster to give Munster a bonus point, but that's the area I think is the next step for for Ulster is to is to probably develop a little bit more maturity and ruthlessness um, late in games and being able to finish strong as well. As you said earlier, Bernard, it's about, um, well, it's imperative on Ulster that they get a lead in this game this weekend. This is the big one, Murray. And a bit of a strange one. They're the two best teams in the competition looking at the tables, and yet they're probably both coming in uh, on, a, on a slightly lower ebb than they've been accustomed to uh, throughout this season. Leinster having lost for the first time in about 78 years, and Ulster having won, but uh, underwhelmed in that second half. So, uh it's an interesting challenge for both sets of players, for both sets of coaching staffs. Like, how do Ulster get that lead then against Leinster? It might be a bit of a stupid question, but how do they assert dominance in this game uh, where they've really la- uh, lacked the ability to be able to do so against Leinster in recent times, apart from probably that uh, Champions Cup quarterfinal mm. a couple of years Coming ago? Coming up with an intercept is a pretty handy way of doing it, isn't it? Fair play to Jack Hardy in that sense. <laughs> I think they'll be focused on winning territory early on and Connacht probably showed the value of that and as did Saracens as well like not overplaying in your own half uh, not getting excited about potential opportunities there unless they're very much on and, and being mature as Bernard says about it 
um, and not giving Leinster what they want. They just want to be down your 22 and, and wearing you down and you in, using their physical prowess in that sense. They can play many different ways at Leinster, but that is kind of a formula for them. So I'd imagine there will be that territorial focus. It's a huge ask for this Ulster team. It would be a real statement, wouldn't it? Last time they won down there was March 2013 when... Um, when Ulster obviously had that really strong team, I think they beat them home and away in the in the regular season that that year. Um, so it'll be a, it will be a massive statement for for this Ulster team. Yeah, there might be a bit of vulnerability there, but Leinster are bringing back some really good players. They do have a lot out injured. Their injury list is is lengthy, um, but the, the likes of James Ryan etc. Returning, even though they didn't play last week, will have been pissed off by it and and the circumstances of it. As Bernard says, maybe that bit of mental slip that complacency which is just seen as unacceptable in that environment so i think it'll be i think it'll be a big response from them and i'd be surprised if they don't deliver a, a really strong performance um in bouncing back from it, it couldn't be a worse time to play leinster bernard in many ways yeah no it couldn't be but i mean if you're dan you're saying look at let's test them let's let's test how how quickly they can you know readjust um you know there's the question mark around who's going to play 10 um and whatever 10 plays won't have played for a while so that's obviously uh, uh an area ulster can can take um take a little bit of comfort from uh, i i think i look back at i, I did send some clips in for um, for tv tomorrow night on the, the final of the pro 14 where ulster got a great start you know hume scores a brilliant try five nil missed the conversion and a couple of sloppy moments of play give leinster a chance to score pretty quickly and leinster score with james Lowe. 7-5, so now Leinster have scoreboard uh, pressure. Connacht didn't look after the ball, or Ulster didn't look after the ball in, in the 22 a couple of times. Leinster up the field, 10-5. And then, you know, just after halftime, intercept pass to Henshaw, and the game is over. And it's just, uh, Henshaw, Henshaw gets the intercept and, or, and scores. And that's how ruthless you need to be. And I think Dan will, Dan will be able to look at that game, which isn't that long ago, and go, look at, we need to make sure you know we're really accurate when we get into their into their half. And okay, if we don't score every time, that we're not giving them soft penalties or or soft exit opportunities. And you do that, then you know you have a chance. And and look at the reality is, um, they're probably not going to be able to get stuck into them and dominate them physically like Connacht did because there's going to be a backlash. They're bringing in better athletes. They're probably not going to be able to dominate them at set piece time like Saracens did because they don't have the, the cattle. Um, but they got to try and find a way to win, and uh, and I actually, to be honest, I don't even think a win is necessary. I think to stop Leinster getting a bonus point and get a bonus point themselves, um, would be a huge result in terms of the rest of the the conference. Given that Leinster have to go to Munster and have to go to Ulster later on, so it's not do or die. They have a chance to basically, you know, really put it into their own destiny, um, uh, if they could win in uh, tomorrow night. But realistically containing Leinster a little bit and, and, and being competitive and getting a losing bonus point given that they're 10 points ahead um, could be could be a good blow as well for Munster then looking ahead to this Connacht game they are playing a, a formidable opposition in that Connacht have been in uh, good form like performing well and now have this sort of signature result under their belts and it feels as though even though Munster will make plenty of changes as well and bring in some of those frontliners in a similar sense to Leinster they can kind of continue with the momentum created by some of those second string guys in the second half last week and uh, there there does seem to be um, uh, like you mentioned the resilience earlier Murray and it's been something that we've associated with Munster kind of traditionally for the last 20 years but I actually think with this it 
team it feels quite accentuated and and actually a bit of a recent development in that the just even looking at the body language of the players there's been a massive drop off in that uh, in Munster over the last couple of years versus what we've associated with them uh, traditionally but now looking at them you look at Clermont last weekend it feels as though they believe that they're never out of a game now and for a lot of the more senior guys looking at the young guys exhibiting that kind of mentality they'll be spurred on by that as well you'd imagine and uh, when they get their jerseys back they'll be looking to hold on to it because for a lot of them it seems as though they're under threat now yeah definitely loads of momentum and it is all about that Claremont win where where things click so like you think of Mike Haley's trial beautiful set piece play they would have worked on loads of the different traits they wanted to improve on there in terms of throwing different shapes and, and forwards involved with, with backs that that leaves them in a really good place that win was in many ways often about their set piece tackle I thought it was really good not just that try there was loads of other instances off scrum even um, and it'll be really good to see a continuation of that as well as trying to build some of the phase play stuff and, and push that a bit more the variety in the kicking game that they have now you've seen those little dinks behind the defence the kick passing and, and variety is probably the word that I'd used to describe them now like it was in previous seasons maybe a little bit predictable what Munster were going to throw at you but I think they're changing that picture now and as you say that is helped by a change in cast I suppose of of their personnel and the people like Gavin Coombs who've pushed through and are demanding a place now Ben Healy Craig Casey the guys we're discussing who are putting real heat on um, and as we always discuss on this podcast, mainly around Ireland, you want to have someone pushing you hard for your place and realistically for your place in every different position across the field. And I think Munster are getting closer to that, certainly. Even like someone like Shane Daly in the back three. And, and he, to me, demands a start now. Um, even in the centre, you know, Dialende's come in and he's obviously the, the clear starter. But there's a number of guys pushing hard. Even Dan Goggins playing some good rugby. So I think they're in a really good position in terms of the individuals. But as importantly, collectively, there's a confidence in what they're doing, in what Stephen Larkin is doing, in what Graham Rowntree did with the scrum and, and how they turned that around after the early penalty um, in Clermont. So there's loads of different reasons for them to have that belief and have that sense of momentum. Yeah, the first half in Ulster wasn't good, but as we said, they, they hung in and, and clung in. We maybe didn't see all those tactical or technical traits, but it kind of kept things rolling. And, and I'd say they're in a very good place with, with the coaches just keen for them to to build on that Clermont performance and bring forward plenty of that stuff so for one I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do offline out in scrum this game How do Connacht approach it then Bernard because they'll have been studying Monster during the week and probably over the last few weeks and they now see a team that even when it seems as though it's fairly soundly beaten it's actually not so when we're talking about Ulster and the need to make a good start against Leinster and and to be honest I'd actually forgotten about that Hume try in the Pro 14 final but I don't even know if it counts as a good start because they didn't build upon it it was a really brief uh, good start if it was one like for Connacht they've seen Claremont for example batter Munster score a bonus point within half an hour uh, and still lose a game so how do you approach this one if you're Andy Friend like is it about nearly perhaps taking some of the sting out of the game a little bit or, or, or rather like you know pl- trying to play the game at your tempo maybe nothing too wild keep it close and, and look to build in the second half yeah I think so and I think Blade we spoke about Carty but I think we need to mention Blade as well he's he's really informing and he's a key part of keeping the, the fringe defence honest um, and giving you know like Carty and the outside backs a little bit more more t- more time and space I think for Friend they just need to try and get into the, the same place psychologically they were against Leinster. And that's hard because 
you know, you're going to Leinster in fear of a hiding. Um, and now the, the whole thing has turned. Everyone's telling you you're great. Um, and there's maybe expectation to win. So, and and let's not, you know, some young players in that kind of squad, particularly in in, in on the bench. Um, and they, you know, it's a it's a new experience for them having a little bit of expectation against you know a, a super team like Munster. But there's a huge reward for Connacht if they can win this week. Um, you know, they're going to put daylight between themselves and 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 uh, and the rest, and and hopefully secure that top top two, even though. It won't lead to playoffs, but um, it's it's going to be really interesting. And I think while it was great what they achieved, I think they need to back it up now. Um, and the manner to do that won't be to be wild. It'll be to be very, um, as you say, measured in your approach and implement, you know, whatever weaknesses or game plan they 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 are weaknesses they see in Munster, um, and just be very pragmatic in that. I don't think. You know they they like to play, but um they got to be just patient and and make sure that they don't give Munster some some soft opportunities. Absolutely can't wait for these two games. I'll get your predictions now, lads. Uh, Starting with yourself, Bernard, Connacht Munster. That's on Saturday. We'll go backwards. Who do you fancy there? Um, yeah, I fancy Connacht. Connacht. Yeah, I think they'll do it. Murray, I go Munster with their returning frontliners to to pip that one. And what about Leinster, Ulster, Murray? Start with you this time. I think Leinster will bounce back. Yeah, I think with returning players, yeah, there's that maybe question mark over 10, but I can't see them losing two in a row at home. Bert? Yeah, I'm saying I think Leinster will bounce back. Nice one, nice one. There were a number of questions in the members' WhatsApp group. I'm going to throw a couple to you before we wrap. And uh, there was one that was actually quite lauded. Uh, let me just find it here now. Uh, members.the42.ie by the way if you want to join the good folks in the whatsapp group paddy kelly had this question uh and it was uh i'll address it to yourself murray to begin with uh paddy says contract negotiations are taking place at the moment with some big names out of contract do you think bringing in let's say the gitu rule uh could benefit the irfu not just financially but also from the player depth point of view given the circumstances and the financial turmoil that the IRFU seem to be in is it time to start picking players abroad over 50 caps and there were a number of people who follow up followed up to Paddy's question saying they were looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this one on the pod um I suppose yeah we've had a chat about this before with players abroad and I'd probably say again what I said then was I think if you're letting players go you're you're reducing the strength of the provinces. I don't know if that's really been taken into account fully. If you decide to do that Gator rule and then the provinces lose, let's say, two each of their of their best players, suddenly they're not going to be as competitive. Yes, there's depth in, in Irish rugby. Yes, there's loads of young talent, but there's a difference between that and guys who can go and win Champions Cup games and really be competitive there. Um, I think it would be a slippery slope, to be honest. I don't think our depth is maybe as good as we sometimes talk about when we get a little bit carried away. I think there's lots of talent there, but um, maybe even this year we've seen some of the depth isn't quite what we imagined when we've seen the national team go through a lot of different players. So I think the model works really well. I think the ferocious competitiveness to get into, particularly into Leinster, obviously, in terms of players siphoning through really produces the cream of the crop um i think that irish rugby has done a better job of probably moving some of those younger players around and is starting to do a better job of that um but i personally i think the model of of having players based at home um and playing for their provinces 
benefits them as well as the national team in terms of managing them and um, and that green jersey as well. So I probably wouldn't have swayed in that. Uh, listen, I think it would be great if guys could go and have those brilliant experiences abroad. I don't think that's a negative thing either. But um, personally, I think the way the system is produces that competitiveness here on these shores. Yeah, is it something that we can afford to do, Bernard? Like, as Murray says, 2020 was a bit of a reality check uh, in relation to depth charts and depth generally. Um, feels as though we probably need all of the players that we can get, uh, all of the top-level players that we can get at the provinces in order to be competitive at all, really. Um, okay, Leinster might win a, a Pro 14 with a, a second-string squad, but it's a bit of an exception, really. And if you're going to be winning Champions Cups... Uh, you need your your main men in the fold here. Yeah, but I, I think it's only going to be four or five players. To be honest, that the big clubs um, in UK or France um, would make a marquee player and make give them a, a big enough offer to to go away. And I think it would it would add to our, our our depth. To be honest, and you look back to the World Cup where we, you know, should we had Dunica Ryan on the plane? You know, would he been better than than John Klein? You know, on the field, off the field, in terms of impact. Um, I would say, yeah, at times over the last couple of years, you know, would Zebo have been a better option than a fullback? It'd be hard to argue that he wouldn't have been. Um, so I don't think it's a, it's a big issue. The players in Ireland are incredibly well paid. Um, the environment in Ireland is incredibly good in all four provinces. There's a lot more stability, security, chance to win silverware. You're living at home, there's a tax break. Um, there's not, you know, there's not going to be a, a massive um, playing loads of players leaving. It's probably... You know, three, four, five players potentially who may, um, may get an opportunity to go, and if that can, if that can help the RFU bounce the books over the next couple of years, um, if that can help unearth, you know, another, another uh, player who can help the province win a European Cup or, or help Ireland, you know, win a Six Nations, by 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 virtue of the fact that he gets more game time in the province, I don't really have an issue with it. I think we're, you know, we're already pretty strong, um. So I wouldn't have an issue because I don't think it's going to be, you know, a huge amount of players leaving. And I do think that there's good young players in all the provinces who, if they get game time, you know, think of like Sakums, et cetera, have potential. But sometimes they actually, even though we we rotate and we rest players, for whatever reason, we haven't given them chances. Um, but they're they're actually they're actually decent. Look at Eat McElroy the weekend, you know, Hume, Moore and Ulster in the centre. You know, there's there's a lot of good talent in Ireland. Um, so if we want to increase our player pool, being open to something like this on a case by case case basis, um, I don't think there's a big issue with it. As I said, I, it's not like Wales or where, you know, it's more attractive to go away because of of, of the finance. In the majority of circumstances, the Irish players get paid more than they would in the UK or France anyway. Interesting. Opposing views on that one. One last one before we go. Some breaking news. Love when this happens as we record a podcast. Paul O'Connell joining the Irish coaching staff. Going to work with the forwards. Looks like he's going to be working on the line out. It's a big announcement, but there are a few uh, in the last few moments. Your immediate thoughts, Mary Kinsella. Feels like a good appointment. The line out's been pretty disastrous, I suppose, over the last uh, year, maybe even longer. Um, and he's obviously got a lot of nous and intelligence in that area it's his his expertise fascinating that he's involved in this kind of role um spoke to him a few months ago and it seemed he was happy enough to be out of it i think he was happy enough to be out of the day-to-day of club coaching where it's just relentless you know you're, you're straight back on it after every single game this role might actually suit him a little bit better where he's 
got those intense periods um, and then can take that little breather. From what I understand, he's obviously hasn't been employed as a professional coach, but has been working almost like a professional coach four or five days a week, doing his analysis, studying the game, speaking to people. It's not like he hasn't been uh, involved in everything and thinking about it, obviously. Um, obviously, as well, he's got that... Uh, he's got that big personality and, and he's a leader and, and people tend to rally around him and I think the players will be really excited to get him in the group and, and learn from him in that sense as well and, and see what he brings in that, I suppose, motivational and uh, mental side of things as well. So definitely it felt like Ireland did need something a little bit extra. Listen, he's not the most experienced coach, of course, so we can't say for certain that it's going to be a massive success, but a guy with his track record in the game and his uh, gravitas as well as his line-out ability, that really makes sense. And for Simon needs to be just to focus on defence as well rather than doing the line-out and defence. That that seemed like an awful lot to be concentrating on, particularly when the line-out wasn't going well. So immediate reaction is that, yeah, this is a, a clever appointment and well done to Andy Farrell for, for making that move, I suppose. Yeah, I agree. I think it's... Um, uh, I think having someone solely responsible for defence is... Is um is the way it is. I mean, look at you know Eddie Jones got John Mitchell, a, a former All Black head coach in his own right, just to look after that area of the game. Um, I think you know Simon uh, will now have um you know another fifty percent of his time to to focus on that and make sure that's that's world class and it gives Paul an an opportunity to come in and focus on an area where he was an expert. But I think I think in terms of a, a, an influence in the squad, in the management and coaching staff. Um, it just gives you a fresh pair of eyes. Someone who is very analytical, uh, very shrewd, um, and was a, was an expert in this area himself. Um, and I think it's yeah, I think it's a good a good move, a great move. An, an Irish coach getting an opportunity, um, and I think the players who work with him will enjoy it. I know the Stade Francais players um, who worked with him, the forwards there, thought he was was world class. It just wasn't the right environment. Um, uh, as can happen in 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 Stade Francais, um, to, to have immediate success on the field, but in terms of his impact and making players better, and make them understand, um, you know, the game, he was he was unbelievably good. So, um, yeah, I think it's a big surprise. I've kept a quiet fair play, um, but it's a it's a positive. I think, and, you know, I think it's great for Paul as well. It gets him gets him back doing what I think he's meant he's he's meant to do. Like, I think he's too. He's too smart um, a rugby man to, to be lost to the game. So um, I'm delighted for him. Can I ask you, Bernard, what might sound like an incredibly obvious question, and it probably is, but what, like, when we're talking about a line-out coach, how did the duties of that role break down? Like, what does a line-out coach do during sessions? How much of it is actual technical coaching and how much of it is on, say, structuring calls and so on? Yeah, so maybe I'll give you a match week. Um, so Monday morning... Monday morning they review the previous weekend um, with maybe the line-out leaders first, so probably three guys who are involved in the strategy. Um, then they would review back to the group. Um, then there'd be a, a preview meeting for the line-out leaders. Maybe that might have happened Sunday night, but normally on a Monday it's a walk-through, so they'd go somewhere and just walk through the movements and the options they're going to use that weekend. Um, so effectively every team would have a big menu uh, of, of line-out options in terms of seven, six, five, four, but also different movements um, and different variations, whether it's a throw, jump, jump, throw, one movement, two movement, three movement. So they basically pick a menu for that week that was going to be successful, ideally, against that opposition based on how they defend, whether they're a mirror or, or a block defense. And then they walk through it on a Monday, so maybe a 20-minute walkthrough. 
And then Tuesday, normally the line out, they'd have a unit session where the line out coach would have maybe a half an hour to, to do, you know, live stuff. Um, so against opposition, scrum coach would have his block then, and then they would feed into the team session that afternoon if it's a double day. And obviously there might be line outs in that session that they play off. So he'd have another chance to rep them there. Um, normally Wednesday's a day off. Thursday, they they normally do a walkthrough defensive line out. So what defensive line out formations you're going to use to, to try and counteract what they do and try and predict what they might use this week, which they haven't used the last week. Um, obviously you might get a chance to do some sharpeners on your own throw that afternoon. And then Friday, normally there's a there's another sharpener session. Um, and that's it. That's in terms of on the field with the whole group. But what the real good guys do is they grab those line-out callers on a, on a Tuesday night and they bring them in and they start to, to look at footage and, and try and pick up triggers of the opposition hooker, the opposition movement, um, and trying to basically prepare them for the pitchers they're going to see on a Saturday and be able to help them make the right calls. Um, so that's, that's something that probably Paul, having been in the middle of the line-outs and having always called and set up his line-out how he liked it, um, can be a real help to the to the next caller for Ireland, where that's going to be James Ryan or Ian Henderson or or Ryan Baird or whoever. Like, don't forget, we have had an issue around not having a specialist kind of dominant lineout character in our in our team as well. So I'd say there's a role for Paul to to make himself redundant to a certain extent um, over the next two or three years. Where you know, in fairness, like in Leinster, Leo Cullen, you know, when he came back from Leicester, you know, we had Mike Brewer, we had John O'Gibbs. I mean, Leo would have the menu, you know, on a Monday morning himself. And, you know, he'd go in and get it signed off by the co- by the forward coach. But, um, and the, the forward coach would supervise everything and he would obviously pick up little things. But, you know, Leo as the line of caller, it was his it was his baby, you know. Um, so that's the, that's the role, I think, sorry, that's part of the role he will have is to, is to find who's the next Paul O'Connell, uh, who's the next Devin Toner, um, who's the next Leo Cullen in terms of, you know, an Irish setup who, who is a real line-out Nas, the Steve Bortwick, you know, who's an absolute line-out geek um, and is able to set up a line-out that works for him. And it mightn't necessarily be copy and paste of what worked for Paul, worked for Leo, but it has to be, you'd have to steer them towards what they see and they feel mid-game, under pressure, uh, and develop that decision-making and uh, clarity of thought. It's amazing to think that that was only half of Simon Easterby's job. Yeah, no, 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 no for sure. Like it is, it was. A, it's a big ask to do both. I think, um, uh, particularly defence, because you know everyone, the teams involved, and you've got your set piece D, your count, you know, your turnover D, um, etc. So, uh, I, I just think it'll it'll give them an extra uh, set of eyes, and um, you know, off the field as well. I mean, in terms of motivation and just presence, he's. He's different level. Super stuff. Looking forward to seeing how that one plays out. Murray, thank you very much. Cheers, Gav. Thank you as well, Bernard. Catch you soon. Thank you. Thank you to everybody at home as well. Hope your 2021 has started in the right fashion. Thanks, Millie, for tuning in. Thank you for all of your support as well over the last year. We're looking forward to talking about rugby most weeks this year. And uh, hopefully it will continue to be played. Uh, if you have a spare few minutes, uh, we'd love for you to leave a, a rating and review on apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this uh, helps us get up the charts and so on and uh, it's always really appreciated 
usually can't believe when I actually check the reviews and people have done it. Um, it's always uh, people being incredibly kind as well. So much appreciated to those of you who have and uh, hopefully more of you can continue to do so. We will be back on Monday. Murray will be chatting to Owen Tulin for the 42 members. Members.the42.e if you want to join them for that chat looking back on the provincial action. And then this podcast itself will be back next Thursday as well. Enjoy all the rugby over the weekend. So until Monday or Thursday, mind yourselves. Take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could have me five mil a year. I wouldn't go. <laughs> it is Tommy Rugby, rugby, weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh!